Well, this morning I have uh, Raul Noguer, um, who is currently at the Department of Neurology at Marcus Stroke and Neuroscience Center, Grady Memorial Hospital. And Raul has, uh, is the corresponding author for an Editor's Choice article that will be published in the November issue of JNIS. And the, uh, the article is entitled, Endovascular Recanalization of Complete Subacute to Chronic Atherosclerotic Occlusions of intracranial arteries. Raul, thanks very much for agreeing to talk with me this morning. Can you summarize a little bit um, the design of your study and maybe also summarize the results? Uh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to participate in the podcast. So um, the, the purpose of this study was to try to put together some data about complete total occlusions of uh, intracranial vessels there is uh, good data for peripheral and coronary vessels um, in the vascular surgery and cardiology literature. However, given the nuances of the intracranial vasculature, this procedure is not uh, commonly performed. So uh, our method was uh, a retrospective uh, case study analysis across two academic institutions, uh, Emory University and University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, we look at our data databases, um, at all cases performed between April 2005 and June 2012 of these type of procedures. And you were able to identify 24 patients that met our study inclusion criteria, which was essentially a complete occlusion of an intracranial artery of a presumed atherosclerotic etiology uh, that had been there for at least 48 hours. Actually, you had a median time from uh, symptoms onset or confirm occlusion imaging to the procedure of five days. Uh, out of these 24 patients, we were able to recanalize 100% of them with an acceptable periprocedural complication rate. You had one, one patient that developed a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, another one developed a reperfusion syndrome. Uh, we full recover after a few days. We had three asymptomatic dissections and one asymptomatic perforation. Um, in terms of clinical outcomes, uh, all these patients, they had stabilization or more often improvement of their symptoms. And at 90 days, uh, we had a good outcome in actually the vast majority of the patients. There were two deaths at 90 days, but none of them were related to the procedure. Okay. And and so all these patients were judged to uh, have hemoden or perfusion problems, hem hemodynamic failure, is that correct? Uh, that is true. And how did the investigators um, separate that from thromboembolic events? Uh, so th that's a great question. So uh, we, we use clinical and imaging assessment to, to help us establishing that these patients had hemodynamic failure. So the vast majority of the patients had uh, perfusion studies with CT or MRI perfusion. Also on imaging, they uh, not only would have the perfusion findings suggestive of imaging, but uh, of uh, hemodynamic failure, hypoperfusion, but also the location of the infarcts often being in the, in the border zone areas. 
uh, for anterior circulation strokes uh, also helped with that. Some patients had uh, TCD studies with uh, vasoreactive assessment. And also, uh, the clinical exam sometimes was, su was suggested by, you know, changing patients in position. A lot of these patients, they got worse when they were made upright from a lying down position. And uh, a lot of them also report that they had symptoms upon standing up or sitting up. I see. And so these were all judged to be atherosclerotic uh, occlusions. Um, uh, what sort of criteria did you use to determine that they were atherosclerotic thrombotic uh, occlusions rather than other etiologies? As you know, uh, that has been one of the limitations in, in the intracranial atherosclerotic uh, field and previous trials, including WASPED and SEMPRIS. We don't really have a good uh, biomarker. We don't have a perfect biomarker uh, of intracranial atherosclerotic disease. So we came up with a, a constellation of uh, findings uh, that he thought were supportive of this etiology. So all these patients had that at the very least one major vascular risk factor, including hypertension, diabetes, di uh, dyslipidemia, or smoking. More often, uh, they had no uh, treatment for. They also had the presence of multifocal intracranial stenosis with the angiographic appearance of intracranial atherosclerotic disease as opposed to other diseases. There was a lack of improvement of this stenotic area on repeated imaging whenever repeated imaging was assessed, uh, suggesting that it was uh, more static as opposed to a dynamic process as you'd see in vasospasm or RCVS, so on and so forth. There was a complete absence of any clinical, laboratory, or imaging findings that were suggestive of other potential causes of intracranial stenosis, including vasculitis, Moya-Moya syndrome, RCVS, uh, cerebral vasospasm, intravascular lymphoma. So all these potential etiologies of uh, intracranial stenosis were excluded uh, based on clinical laboratory. And finally, uh, some of these patients had evidence of calcification at the level of the stenosis, and that was thought to be a high, high specific finding. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense. And did you or the investigators find that there were any technical nuances to uh, crossing these uh, occluded lesions compared to, for example, an acute um, embolic phenomenon? We took advantage of the fact that, again, these are patients that they have hemodynamic failure, but uh, there is a reason why they haven't had yet a full territorial infarct in their supply by those arteries. It's the fact that they have some collateral flow. So oftentimes you can obtain a, a long acquisition roadmap and not only see the proximal, but also the distal uh, cerebrovascular treatment. And that helps, uh, it's very important to, to get this long acquisition because that helps you understanding the land zone of your uh, microwire. And uh, of course, if your microwire is not going into that distal vessel, you don't cross it with a microcatheter, which would uh, cause a, a bigger perforation. Oftentimes during embolic occlusions in stroke thrombectomy cases, we tend to use a, a microwire loop to decrease the chances of vessel perforation. Uh, here, unfortunately, 
really want a very straight minimal curve on your microwire to, to allow for the smallest possible crossing profile so you don't use a loop. Finally, uh, it is very important to use a digital access catheter of some sort, um, you know, Navian, Neuron, or a DAC, to allow for greater support at the level of the microcatheter when we are about to cross the lesion. Uh, that also helps uh, the delivery of the stent, uh, which uh, uh, most, most commonly use balloon-mounted stents in these cases. So a uh, digital access catheter is very helpful. Okay. It seems like the majority of uh, patients were recanalized with balloon-mounted stents. Was there a reason that you chose the balloon-mounted stent as opposed to a, a self-expanding stent? Uh, yes. So we do like the balloon-mounted stents uh, because, again, these are very complex lesions, and you feel that... Uh, the more steps you have in the procedure, the safer the procedure will be. So with a balloon-mounted stent, you can achieve near-complete or complete luminal recover with a single step as opposed to with the, the double-crossing need of angioplasty and then self-expanding stent placement. These are typically short-segment occlusions, uh, so typically you just need one uh, or at most two overlapping balloon-mounted stents. And um, since these are complex lesions, any areas of uh, microdissections uh, would be tacked down by, by the immediate stent placement. And before, before you cross the lesion, did the investigators infuse any lytics or 2B3A inhibitors or just kind of go straight across? So in our analysis, we didn't... Uh, accurately collect that data, but uh, based on, on our experience, we, we only rarely will use uh, lytics or glycoprotein 3 inhibitors because these are planned procedures, so all the patients will be on Plavix and aspirin, which is actually almost like a, a requirement because we want these patients to be medical failures. Again, this is a procedure that we see as a, a compassion uh, type of uh, approach. Uh, it's not something that has been prospectively validated, and the risks at uh, mostly at the time of this study were unknown. So all these patients, they had to fail um, best medical treatment, which uh, had to include uh, the use of dual antiplatelet therapy, uh, that being the reason why, you know, most of the time you didn't feel that you would need intra-procedure infusion of glycoprotein to B3A inhibitors. Okay, well, that makes sense. Um, and then I noticed that there was a pretty large percentage of patients in the series had basal artery occlusions, and, and you were able to recanalize all of these without any complications of uh, perforator occlusions. Um, it seems that, you know, in some of the other series and in Sampras, you know, this was sort of a complication. So that's r remarkable. Do you have any comment of why you think you, you may have been able to successfully uh, recanalize these basal artery lesions without having um, any significant uh, perforator problems? So the, the first thing that we want to be careful is we, we had a total of uh, 18 patients with vertebral basal occlusion. So it, it is still a small sample size. And uh, we, we need to mention that. But I, I believe the main difference here is while in Simplis you had stenotic lesions, 
here you have uh, complete occlusions. So uh, presumably perforator at the vicinity of the occlusion was already occluded. And again, since these are typically short segments, occlusions, and you were using short stents, uh, I believe that was the reason why you didn't have additional occlusions of other perforators that were not a priori involved. Um, so again, I believe the difference here is by having a complete occlusion, any perforators would have been already occluded prior to the procedure as opposed to periprocedure phase like in Sempris. That makes sense. Yeah, and I was just interested, um, you had mentioned earlier that the one patient had a um, hyperperfusion injury that was temporary. Do you remember any details about that? Um, because it seems like that, that would certainly be a potential complication that you might worry about in this setting. Uh, yes, absolutely. This was actually one of the patients I treat. Um, and she developed uh, uh, headaches, uh, confusion, and subsequently seizures uh, in, the in the immediate post-procedure phase. We performed a CT scan that was evidence of SOCO effacement, suggestive of cerebroedema. CT perfusion demonstrate a fair degree of hyperemia in, in the recent uh, reperfused uh, territory. So she was managed with aggressive blood pressure control, which is something that uh, we can't emphasize enough in, in this patient population. They are maximally auto-regulated, so as soon as the stent is deployed, we, we tend to lower the pressure uh, to parameters. Uh, we typically say a systolic of 120 to 130, uh, as long as we keep a MAP above 65. So. Um, in this patient, I believe the initial blood pressure control was a little bit suboptimal, uh, and you manage her with um, more aggressive blood pressure control with intravenous nicotipine infusion, uh, antiepileptics because she sees, and you hook her up to EEG monitoring and just uh, give her supportive treatment, and she improved over the course of three to five days and made actually a very good recovery. So you think it was really the procedural um, blood pressure control and, and, and really looking back, nothing before the procedure that uh, would have given you a clue that she might be prone to develop the hyperperfusion syndrome? So really, uh, there, was, there wasn't anything really predictable about it. It was more um, the procedural blood pressure control? Uh, exactly. Uh, again, uh, it's, we are a little bit in an uncharted territory with uh, the early phases of this procedure. So uh, all the data that you have comes from hyperperfusion syndrome in patients who have undergone carotid and arterectomy or stenting. And, uh, you know, we, we essentially made similar assumptions uh, to what you know from, from that more common uh, phenomenon. Okay. Um, and so have, have the results of uh, your study changed your uh, clinical practice at all? I think it's important to highlight that we still consider this treatment a non-standard of care approach, so a compassion type of uh, treatment. And you presented to um, our colleagues, clinicians, and the families as such. However, we, we now somewhat better understand the overall risks and success rate of the procedure. So you have some numbers, uh, even though we, we emphasize caution because this is based on only 24 patients. 
Having said that, I have found it helpful when discussing this with uh, other clinicians, patients, and their families, because before we essentially had, uh, you know, recollection of a handful of cases, and that was essentially what we were describing. Uh, now with uh, this paper, and I'm sure we, we're going to be collectively gathering more and more data about this, uh, I think are able to present the risks and potential benefits a little bit better. Thanks so much for um, agreeing to talk with me this morning, and um, congratulations uh, on this excellent work, and um, I look forward to reading more articles of yours in the future.